That's a challenging question, isn't it? Especially when we think about the year of 2015. Not the greatest year, I think we could say, in many regards, as we think about the world and all of the problems and even here in America, all the issues. And that has little to say about all the issues each of us have in our own personal lives. We'll get into that in just a moment. I've talked with many people over the years who grew up in the Midwest, grew up every year going to school, getting Christmas break, grew up driving by nativity scenes, or maybe their neighbor had one in front of their house, uh, going to the mall and hearing songs like uh, Oh Holy Night and things like that. And in spite of all of that, they never heard the actual purpose and meaning of Christmas. Like somehow they just, they never quite put it together. And maybe you're here and that's you, right? You've got, came here with somebody and you've never put like two and two together. You've never sort of got it. Like what is the big deal and why is this so important? So this Christmas Eve, we're celebrating here at our church, all our campuses, Christmas in light of the big story. And we want to tell the big story and the Christmas story together. The Bible tells us a story, and this story is not a, it's not a myth, it's not a sort of fantasy story, it's not a make-believe story. This is a story that is real and true and explains all reality. Now, how can we say that? Because the Bible is God's written storybook. In it, he tells us Everything that has happened, what, what's going on right now, explains this reality and even describes the future. And if this is indeed God's book, then we certainly can trust it, and we can know that it's true and reliable. And in this story, God tells a story about himself. And in a sense, you could sort of see everybody as being a part of that story. Your story is a part of this big story. We all have a story, don't we? We instinctively kind of want to understand each other's stories. Often, I think, when we meet each other, so think of some of the first things we'll kind of ask one another. We'll say, where are you from, right? Where are you from? So on the count of three, let's all say where we're from. One, two, three, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Okay? Now we're all good friends. We all know where we're from. But it is one of the things that we first want to know, right? About, like, where'd you grow up and what's your story? Origin, apparently, is really important to us. And if we get talking a little bit more, maybe we'll ask a question like, so, like, uh, what do you do? Like, what do you do for a living? What's your thing? Apparently, sort of role in society is an important thing to us. We might say, where do you live now? Oh, you live over there, right? Do you, do you know the, the Smiths? They live around the corner from you. And everybody has a family named Smith that lives around a corner from them, right? So you're like, yeah, I think maybe I do know them. But you're sort of freaking me out right now, knowing my neighbors. We try to connect. Here's the point that I'm getting at, is we try to connect our story with their story. So, oh, you're from, like I hear this, being from Iowa. I can't tell you how often. I'll, they'll say, where are you from? I'll say, I'm from Iowa. They go, do you know the Joneses? Like, <laughs> It's a state, okay? I don't know very many people, but they assume it, you know, only a few people live there. You must know them, right? No, no. Millions live there. Um, but anyway, I digress. So the point being that we want to make our, we want to connect our stories. Something about your story intersects with my story. 
and we can begin a relationship that way. And if we get really good friends, we might get into talking about like, man, what, do you, what, do you, what are your dreams? When you think about the future, your future, what do, you, what do you hope to be true? And we see that story in us, right? Where are you from? Where are you right now? What do you hope to be your future? It's just like instinctive in all of us. We all have a story. So what's your story, friend? All I know is part of your story is being here this afternoon. God has a story, and again, it's not a fantasy, it's not a fiction, it's a true story. The things that are described in the Bible are real things that happen, they are real people, and the explanation of what happened helps us know what this is all about anyway. So we're telling the story. This is a one-hour service. We can't tell all the details. We're just hitting the highlights here. But as we think about the highlights of the story, as the video explained, the story begins with God, that there is a God. That might be a kind of story-altering thing for you to consider, but there is a God. And the Bible says that God, prior to creation, was there in Trinity, in triunity, Maybe you've heard of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that there are three persons in this one God, and they love one another. Yeah, this this is a love story. This whole thing is a love story. They love one another. And just like lovers do when they fall in love, lovers want to create things, okay? You find a guy that all he does is, you know, play video games and lift weights. When he falls in love, now he becomes a poet, right? You're like, where did this come from? It's love, it's love. We sing songs, we, you know, all of a sudden we want to sort of create these things as a celebration of the love that we feel with our our beloved. And God's the same way. And in that love and out of that love, God wanted to create something as an expression of what their love is like. And the universe is that expression. That must be some love, don't you think? If the universe is the love note, if the universe is the love song, what love God must have? And that's what the Bible says. He created everything. And we look around the world and, and, and the universe, and it's like the vastness of the universe. It's, I've seen mathematical attempts at, you know, how many stars there are and galaxies, and it just blows our minds, right? So vast, so huge, and yet so harmonious and so symmetrical and so uh, wonderfully interdependent right down to the uh, atomic level. So galactic level, atomic level, everything in between, amazing balance that we find in this universe. So precise, mathematically precise. I read, I read that uh, you know, yesterday was winter solstice. So today is a little bit longer than yesterday. So we have a little bit more light that we can enjoy today. I read somewhere how much more we have. Do you know how much more today is than yesterday? Four seconds is what I understand. So enjoy it, okay? Enjoy those four extra seconds of light. It's wonderful. But that is the same four extra seconds of light on this date as it's been for thousands of years. You think about the orbiting planets, all that, the precision. It's amazing, isn't it? All of that from the creative hand of God. And the Bible says that when God created, he did one thing that was more special, more unique than anything else. When he made human beings, he gave to us awareness and capacities that we find nowhere else in the universe. So if you go home tonight and you look in the mirror and you really sort of looked at who you are as a person, 
you would find that in your very makeup is you are relational, you are uh, moral, and you are spiritual. You love relationships with people. You're like wired for relationships. Even the introverts here want to have relationships at some level with somebody. There's a moral awareness that you have, so you see tragedies in the world and injustice in the world, and something inside of you says, that's wrong. That shouldn't be that way. And every human being in all of human history, all over the world, is spiritually oriented. There's something inside of us that craves a connection with something transcendent to us. Why are we all this way? The story of the Bible explains it, that God is relational, spiritual, and moral. And that he wired us right down to our DNA to have a perfect alignment in relationship with him. You are the way that you are so that you can have a relationship with your creator. All of us are. Well, the story of the Bible goes that Adam and Eve, the first human beings, were in that perfect harmonious relationship with God and with each other and with creation. Everything was great. It was paradise. But Adam and Eve made a moral decision against the will of God. They rebelled against God. And the Bible says that in the story that when that happened, now a holy God was forced to judge Adam and Eve for their sin and to break that relationship that we were made for. God is the source of our life. God is the source of our meaning. That now is torn from us. And a whole bunch of other terrible things that came, but that being key to the story leaving now mankind and all of us as individuals to try to scratch out a sense of meaning and purpose in life without the God that we were made to find meaning uh, with, in a relationship with. And you look at the story of, of human history and all of the wars and all of the terrible things, and yes, there's some good things in the world and there's good people to the extent that we kind of are kind to one another and help old ladies across the street, but generally... In general, mankind over and over again shows his basic corruption. There's a flaw that all of us have. Pride and selfishness and the sins that flow from it rear their ugly head all too often. Most of us blind to these things in our own life. And the result of that is ongoing despair. Why, why do your friends and your family, and maybe you'll talk about this over the table, why are they into this and into that and into this and smoking this and drinking that and trying somehow to find a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. Why? Because God made us. We can't be like the dog and the cat or the corn across the street. We can't just grow and that's it. We need to have a relationship with something greater than transcendent to us because God made us that way. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis said, said it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Does that resonate with you? How well does the Bible, the story that I'm telling you, how well does this correlate to the world that we see around us? Does the world seem broken to you? Look back at 2015. Have we had some serious brokenness in this world this year? Absolutely. Major brokenness. The Bible says that we experience pain and suffering as a result of sin. Have you experienced pain and suffering this year? The Bible says that we uh, were made to find our meaning only in God, 
Are you here today with a sense that something's missing in your life? Maybe you're wondering what life is really all about. And the Bible says that as a result of sin, all human beings die. How accurate has the Bible been to the human story? Pretty much everybody has died, right? And that makes me think everybody here, we're all going to die. The point that I'm making is that if the Bible is telling a story that explains reality and the explanation that it gives aligns perfectly with the world that we experience every single day, does it not argue for the truthfulness of the story? And does it not maybe explain the reality of the world and the life that we're living in? I think that it does. I think that it does. I was talking with my neighbor. I've got a neighbor that, uh, maybe you have a neighbor like this. We'll call them the Smiths or the Joneses. <laughs> uh, I've got a neighbor, and, and uh, in case he's here right now, I just want to say I love him, because I don't know. Maybe he's here at this service. It's dark. I can't tell. But uh, anyway, this neighbor of mine, he, he got ranting to me about the condition of the world, and, you know, I think ISIS had just done something, and he was all, you know, torn up about that, and went on to politics, and just, you know, corruption, and local politics, and, you know, rah, 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 just kind of dumped on me. And he finally takes a breath from his rant, and I said, it's almost as if the world needs a savior. Now he knows what I do for a living. And he goes, oh. (laughs) But that's more than a joke, isn't it? Does it seem to you like the world needs a savior? Which leads us to a little village in Israel, somewhere around the year 5 B.C. And a woman and a man who just have arrived there, the woman being a virgin, after an angelic appearance saying that they were going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And a dramatic moment that would happen there in Bethlehem, God's rescue. I'd like to ask that uh, everybody pay attention to what I'm about to say. I will never share anything more important with you. Your ears will never hear anything more important and more wonderful. As we talk about this story and we talk about Christmas and how you can have a nativity in your front yard your entire life and never put two and two together, this this is where the rubber meets the road. To understand that Jesus coming into this world was God's divine rescue for sinners. He... We were made by him. We were made for him. That same love that he had in, in the, in cr- before creation that made the universe, he now directs towards us, sinners in rebellion against him, and sends a rescue, a baby born in Bethlehem, a divine rescue. And that baby grew up and was asked by a religious leader one time to explain the nature of salvation, and Jesus said these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There is a one-sentence summary of the story. For God so loved the world, that God that made everything and made us 
loved the world. And by the world there, he's not talking about dirt and sky. He's talking about this world of humanity that has sinned against him and is in rebellion against him. That God so loved us that he did not leave us to hell. He did not leave us to punishment. But rather in love, he sends a rescue and gave his only son. If there's a place in that verse that is Christmas, it's right there. It describes what Jesus did, the Son of God, coming into this world, born supernaturally of a virgin, and as the video showed, lived his life some 33 years, and the last three years, his life was marked by the kinds of things you would expect if God was walking on earth, incredible miracles and incredible teaching. He literally turned the all of Israel upside down, even the religious leaders and the political leaders. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted a part of him. But in the end, they were all jealous of him, and they wanted to kill him. And kill him, they did. The Bible says that he died on a cross. But the Bible explains, again, not just what happened, but why it happened. And the Bible says that when Jesus died, he did not die like you and me die. We die because we're sinners. He never sinned. He died on that cross for us. He died taking our punishment. He died taking our guilt. And by doing that, now allowing a holy and loving God to indeed rescue sinners from their sins by forgiving our sins. The verse goes on, that whoever believes in him will not perish. The consequence of our sin is taken away, but rather we're given eternal life. And that was that last part of that video, that future coming, that thing we're all interested in. What happens to me when I die? Eternal life with God. This is the rescue that God has sent. Now, you'll notice in the verse that there is a condition for those that believe, the text says. What does it mean to believe? Well, you saw in the video one of these life preservers floating on an ocean. And I've got uh, a life preserver here. This is uh, our Gary campus has has an old pool. And this is one of the life preservers from that old pool. And this looks like a preserver that's uh, preserved a few lives over the years, hasn't it, right? It's not exactly pristine and clean. uh, But Uh, it's a life preserver. And the way life preservers work, you're probably familiar with this, is that when somebody is drowning, uh, people will throw a life preserver to them. And often it has a string attached to it. And the idea there is that you can pull them to safety. And so the life preserver comes to the person who's struggling and you know, there, there that person is, and they're, they're about to drown. And so they're doggy paddling with all they have. They're trying to save themselves. Or maybe it's one of these, you know, pictures of the, the raging river, and you got that woman, and she's holding on to a branch or a twig or something like that. She's thinking that's going to save her. So here comes the life preserver. The presence of a life preserver doesn't save anybody, does it? It only means that there is a way to be saved. In order to be saved by a life preserver, that person who is frantically trying to swim or holding on to something else, they have to let go of that other thing and to hold on to the life preserver as if their very lives depended on it. In John 3.16, when it says, for those that believe, belief means trust. Trust. All my trust now for my salvation, for my right relationship with God, for my future, all my trust 
is now in who Jesus was and what Jesus did. That is a picture of what it means to become a follower of Jesus, is to put all my hope and trust in him. And the Bible says that when a sinner does that, all of these promises that God has made about forgiving our sins and giving us new life and restoring a relationship with him and receiving the gift of eternal life, all those promises now become true for me by virtue of my faith, actually by virtue of what Jesus has done. And so here you are in this service right now, and I know for some people here, you've seen the nativity scene, you've heard the songs at the mall, you've never quite put two and two together, but I'm hoping you're getting it right now. And in this word that I'm sharing with you, God has floated a life preserver right next to you, right now where you sit. There is a reality, there is a story, there is a truth that will save you forever. But just like that life preserver being next to the drowning victim, it doesn't do them any good unless they put their trust in it. And you can put your trust in Jesus by simply expressing that to him. The Bible says that if I believe in my heart, or if I I profess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I will be saved. And right now where you are, If this is resonating in your heart, you can believe. You can be saved from the wrath of God. You can be saved to life eternal. And God wants to save you, friend. That's why he sent a rescue. You heard stories of World War II, people that would do amazing things, you know, go off for that buddy, that friend, through the forest, through the jungle, through the whatever, in order to save them. They still make movies about them because it's an incredible display of love. Jesus is God's display of love to you. And we just want to float that truth right next to you. I can't believe for you. This is something between you and God. But I can encourage you as a friend that the trust that I put in my, in my Savior Jesus, I've never regretted it. I have never regretted it. It's the most important thing in my whole life. And we want that for every single person that we possibly can, that God allows us to minister to. So I'm going to ask right now, if we could just bow our heads and just have a moment of quiet contemplation here, for you to look into your heart, to think about the story, to think about your story up to this point. Perhaps a story of brokenness. Perhaps a story of unmet expectations in life. A story of sin. And to think that God in heaven has sent you a rescue. Will you believe in his rescue? Will you believe in his son, Jesus? Jesus.